I'm going to speak this afternoon on a topic that is extremely important. I don't want to say that about every topic. There are other topics that are as important as they relate to this topic, but there is no more important topic. So I hope that you'll be listening very carefully and think about it. As I prepared, I scribbled down just a great lot of scriptures, and I realized I need three sermons to cover this topic, but I'll cover the basis of it today and maybe come back to it later. It is a tremendous thing when you start getting into it, and it is the first and great commandment. There's no more important thing in the world today, as I've mentioned, I think, in another sermon recently, often, and I've had people tell me this for decades, they'll say, well... I'm a good Christian. I just try to love my neighbor and live a good life. You know, love your neighbors yourself. That's all they say. What's wrong with that? Well, that's okay as far as it goes. But that's like saying I enjoy water, but I don't need to eat a lot. Okay. Do you need to eat food too? You better believe you need to eat food. Jesus Christ talked about two great commandments. And the world as a whole does not begin to start to understand the meaning of the first and great commandment. And we in God's church, I think, should concentrate more on that and come to understand how important that is. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, if you would, in your Bible. Follow along, and this will mean more to you. And take note, certainly, if you wish to. It says in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 35... The Pharisees were there talking to Jesus, and one of them asked a lawyer, asked him a question, testing Jesus and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And those are different aspects of the human psyche. Your heart certainly is that a seat of emotion as it couldn't be expressed in this way and some of the commentaries point this out your whole attitude the thing that makes you tick and of course your soul would be your 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 animal life and it's talking about your energies your strengths your drives you've got to get all your drives in connection with what god says his law his way of life does your lack of food make you go out and kill others to get food does your drive for sex make you commit adultery or fornication? Does your drive for fun make you want to drink too much or get into, uh, uh, you know, drunkenness or, or a drug addiction or whatever? And love God with all, of course, your mind, your attitude, everything you think about. As you've heard me say a few times, I don't think not recently, but a very important saying I read Many years ago, it's become important. In fact, I have it written in the first part of my Bible. The thoughts that dominate your mind are what matter most to you. The thoughts that dominate your mind. What are you thinking about all day long? Are the thoughts of God, the purpose of God, the ultimate goal of your life, which ought to be in the kingdom of God and be a coming king in the coming kingdom of God, are those thoughts the thoughts that dominate your mind or are the lusts of the flesh, your daily pleasure, your daily work, just the stuff around you or the latest television show or movie or a crazy song or whatever it is, are those the thoughts that dominate your mind? Each of us has got to figure that out and be very honest and very with ourselves. You're to love God 
with all your heart, with all your uh, heart, soul, your animal life, your drives, and with all your mind, what you think about. This is the first and great commandment. He didn't talk anything in the first and great commandment about loving your neighbor. That's very important. I'm not trying to put that down. I'm just saying so many people say, well, I just try to be good and love my neighbor. And they leave out loving God. And I think most of you in the church, if you follow me and you brethren around the world who may hear this later, you know a lot of people say those things. But when the Revolutionary War comes along, they hate the British and fee fi fo fum I smell the blood of an Englishman. You know, they had these old sayings in the Revolutionary War. And then they had later the Civil War, many other wars in between. And the brethren and the people in the north sometimes were literally hating and fighting and killing their own relatives in the south and vice versa. And they were good Protestants and good Catholics murdering each other by the hundreds of thousands. One of the most bloody wars in history as far as the number of casualties were concerned. Our so-called civil war. Christians, Catholics and Protestants fighting other Catholics and Protestants who had happened to be Northerners or Southerners. These were good churchgoers then that were doing this. Why? Because they did not understand the first commandment, the great commandment, to fear God and keep his commandments. And so therefore they could not, without God's guidance and God's spirit, know how to love their neighbor as themselves and certainly did not have God's Holy Spirit and the power to make themselves do that because they were cut off from God. They were breaking his commandments. They didn't understand his law and his way and did not have his spirit or they would have not been shooting each other in the face or jamming their bayonet in there and ripping the guts out of the guy across from them, a member of their own church in many cases. That's been going on all over the world. You've got to keep the first commandment, the great commandment, to be able to properly keep the second commandment, which is to love your neighbors yourself. He says, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Every bit of God's law, all ten commandments, all of his statutes and judgments, holy days, all these other things are simply based upon and suspended from, in a sense, these two great commandments telling you to love God and to love your neighbor. And they spell out in a greater detail in the letter, so to speak, how to do that. Plus, in the New Testament, of course, all of God's commandments and statutes are magnified by teaching and by example. Let's turn now, if you would, back to Deuteronomy 6. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You'll notice here, here is where this came from. Jesus was simply paraphrasing the Old Testament. Why would Jesus do that? Because the entire Bible is the revelation from God. And to fully understand how to love God, I have a very good book I would recommend to you that you really study the whole book. This is the book I'm holding now, the Bible. It tells you completely how to love God and how to love your neighbor. You've got to really study it. Drink in of it, feed upon it to fully understand the subject. But remember, brethren, and I won't try to prove that to you now, most of you know, who was the God of the Old Testament? 
Who was the God that was saying these words back here in Deuteronomy? The personality that became Jesus Christ. He was the word, the spokesman that later emptied himself and became Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, speaking for himself and God the Father, and he tells us in the New Testament, I and my Father are one. So when I talk to you this afternoon about loving God with all your heart and soul and mind, remember that includes Christ. You've got to love God and Christ because Christ is God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So this is what Jesus quoted from. And this is the Word of God. And it began right back there. It came from Christ back there as the Word came from God. Going back to Genesis 1 to fill in a little bit of the meaning behind all of this, the background information that helps us understand, turn to Genesis chapter 1 here, if you would, for a moment, brethren. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it tells how he created all the plants and animals. And in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image the very image of God, and frankly, when you understand it and what the Bible certainly indicates, God did not make us in His image just in physical form and shape, having two eyes and two ears and, uh, you know, arms and legs and so forth. He made us spiritually like Him in many ways, giving us understanding, giving us creative imagination, the ability to come to know the truth, and to know righteousness, and to choose the right and resist the wrong. He made us in His image. Let us, not me, because there is more than one person back here. That's why it says us. The Greek scholars will admit that's what it's talking about, more than one being. They don't understand it, most of them. Us, God the Father and the Logos, who became Christ. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and everything. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're all in the image of God. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and, put, and then have dominion over every other creature. We're made to be rulers over the earth. We're given limited dominion limited creative imagination like God himself so man can put rockets on the moon and, and rockets into outer space and all these kinds of things. And if we had a bigger budget in the United States, we'd be doing more of that right now. We might get to Mars. When man built the uh, Tower of Babel, God said this they begin to do. God knew the man's mind is almost unlimited as all human beings begin to come together and speak the same language and work on these things. So at the time of the end, they're having a lot of stuff that man is able to do, but for the most part, he misuses it or wastes it. So we have to think about that. So God made us in his image. For our good, brethren, God wants us to learn to have worship and awe of him. And when I talk about all of that in this sermon, realize God is love, as it says in 1 John 4, and verses 8 and 16, he is love. He has total outflowing concern for us, and he wants us to have love and outflowing concern 
And because he is our father, he is our creator, he is so much bigger and greater and more wise, he wants us to have a sense of tremendous love and respect for him. Why? Because it puffs him up. It's going to make him feel better. He doesn't need to feel better about himself. He knows everything. He is everything. He knows it will help us to have that all. One of my sons asked me years ago when he was a little boy, and I've obviously forgotten which one, so I won't want to name one. It makes him embarrassed when I say these things anyway, but I don't remember which one. He says, Daddy, is God as big as you? I said, Yes, son, God is much bigger than me. He could be a million or a trillion times bigger, or he could be smaller if he wants to appear that way, because God has all power. And Daddy's not that big, and he does not have that much power. When you're a little tiny child, when I was a little tiny child, my father looked 10 feet tall because he was very strong physically for his size at least. And he could chin himself three times from a dead hang with his right arm. I couldn't do that even once. Never have been. Try it, you younger men. Just try to just grab a chinning bar and just pull yourself up. No jumping, no, no, and one helping. You just pull up. He could do it three times and once with his left arm. Very strong in his arms and shoulders. I thought God was, I thought Daddy was invincible almost. And that was good for me. That was good for me because I could have deep respect for him and listen to him. And when he had to chastise me, which he did a number of times, then I learned to take it and realize that overall he meant it for my good. He tried to do what was right. But God wants us to have that awe of him so that we're willing to Obey him, follow him, take chastisement from him, know that he is love, that he is wise, that he knows what is best for us. So God wants all those things, and we have to really understand it. God wants us to have the attitude portrayed back here in Matthew 6:33. That's very familiar to most of you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these physical things will be added to you. He said, don't worry about what you eat and what you drink and what you put on. Most Americans are running around trying to get more clothes and more cars and more television sets and more food and more liquor and worry about those physical things. It's not wrong to have some of those things if you use them within God's law. Remember, brethren, Mr. Armstrong used to say over and over, and this is certainly true, and I say amen to it, he says, sin is not a thing. Sin is not a bottle of whiskey. My old Methodist grandmother might not like that because of they, she was into, of course, the old religion. She's a very wonderful woman, though, and sincere. But sin is not a bottle of whiskey. Sin is how you use the whiskey. Sin is how you use the bottle of wine. Sin is how you use the relationship between the males and the females. Does it break God's law? That's the whole point. Sin is not a thing. Sin is, 1 John 3, 4, the transgression of God's law. And as I explained so many times back there in Genesis, God does not start out saying the greatest sin is sex. His first command was saying, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. So he was saying, you know, certainly the rest of the Bible tells us, get married but Garrett, get married, have a family, love each other, have lots of kids. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what God wants. He himself is building a family. He wants us to build a family. 
And if we use those gifts in the right way, that honors God. That's not something to feel nasty about or bad about at all. If the world has got it all messed up in the way they've made sex a dirty thing, and some of the old-fashioned Protestants made drinking a glass of wine a nasty thing, and one of the women I loved a lot, one of my relatives, when I'd show, or they, she would see in our house some liquor, she'd say, that's nasty. So, well, you know, she, she was taught that. She was partly kidding, but, you know, she'd been taught that whole attitude. No, sin is the transgression of God's law. So what do you seek above everything else according to Jesus Christ? You seek first, above everything else, the kingdom, the coming government of God's on this earth. And then you seek his righteousness and his righteousness. What is God's righteousness? And, of course, God explains that back in Psalm 119, verse 172. All the commandments are righteousness. That's what righteousness is, God's commandments. Now, let's go at this point to 1 John, uh, back in 1 John chapter 1 here near the end of the New Testament, just before the Old Testament. This is 1 John chapter 1. And this comes from, of course, uh, as Jesus called him, the beloved apostle. He was the one that Jesus personally related to. And as you read the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you can see why. John has a deeper, profound, spiritual aspect to his writings than anyone else in the Bible in many ways. He just does. But in 1st John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, That was which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, our eyes have looked upon, and our hands have handled. He was right there with Christ helping Jesus in and out of the big fishing boats, climbing the hills, passing each other food or bedrolls or working together, rubbing shoulders as men, because Christ was a man at that time in the human flesh. And he was not a nicey-nice person, like my son Jim was describing in the sermonette. I think Christ had a great deal of happiness and joy. He'd look up at the sunrise and say, Boy, it's beautiful this morning. And he enjoyed that beautiful area around the Sea of Galilee. He didn't go down in the desert except a certain time, but I think he enjoyed the beautiful areas that he had there to enjoy. He'd made them, but he enjoyed them. So we know him. Our hands have handled him concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This was God in the flesh. He says, we know him. We spent thousands of hours with him. We understand him. And these Gnostics that came along later and made Christ a kind of an idea, a metaphor, a disembodied spirit, all the other ideas they had about it, says that's baloney. It's not real at all. We have dealt with this man. He was a human being. We walked and talked with him all day long for three years. That which we have seen, we apostles and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. John says you can have fellowship with us. And we can through reading the writings of the apostles. And of course he was talking about people alive. And they would have some physical fellowship. But he knew this book was going to be passed around. Everyone couldn't see him perfectly at that time or personally. That truly you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with, notice, the Father. And with his Son, Jesus Christ. Brethren, when you understand it, God is 
reproducing himself, God is building a family. And God has outflowing love. He and the Logos, the spokesman, could have been just uh, fat and sassy, as we say in the human flesh, you know, and just enjoyed themselves. We got the whole universe, uh-huh, and we could scoot around. But since they had outflowing concern, they both, God the Father and God the Word, desired to have fellowship with other beings. Just like a young married couple, if they're normal, today they're squelching the normal love of man in many cases, so they want to just have a carnal fun and not have children. But the normal desire of a happily married younger couple, as most of you know, is to have children. they just what they want. And that's right. They wanted to have a family. And they're making us their family because they want love. They want comradeship. They want fellowship. And we are to be the recipients of that fellowship if we will learn to have a higher level of love and responsibility with them. Our fellowship can be complete and we can be totally one with God, fellowshipping with God, walking with God, communing with God, and finally born of God as full sons of God, being the very family of God. Wow, that's wonderful when you think about it. God wants that. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write that your joy may be full. This is the message which you've heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He wants us to be like that, not just to make us nicey-nice or make us where we can't have fun. He wants us to have fun. He wants to have a depth of joy beyond anything that most people have ever experienced. But we've got to do it God's way, not our human carnal way, because sin hurts. It hurts us. It hurts all the people around us. It hurts the whole society. Some young woman will think, well, I got myself pregnant here, and I didn't mean to, whether she's married or not, and I'll have more fun if I don't have this child. So isn't that a good thing? No, it's not a good thing. That little human being, whether born or in her womb as a potential God, a potential member of the family of God throughout all eternity, and if she decides to murder that child, she can either be a mother or a murderess. You know, they say it's a woman's choice. Okay, she has a choice, all right. She can either be a mother or be a murderess. And if she's a murderess, she not only hurts her own emotions because they've had it documented. Thousands of women later have sleepless nights and hurt and mental anguish the rest of their lives when they realize what they've done. They often hurt their bodies as well in having this cutting in there and taking this baby out and all the things that happen. And then it hurts the whole society because others hear about it and get that same attitude. And then human life becomes cheap. Cheap, not something godlike. It's an awful thing. It just spreads right out. It's a terrible thing. One young man, married man, may think, well, my wife is getting fat and here's this pretty woman next door and she's frustrated with her husband and I'm frustrated with my wife. It would be greater love if we would just divorce our mates and then we could have a wonderful time together. Is that love? No, that's lust. Because it's not learning the lessons of life that God wants marriage to, to portray. You're not learning to be loyal unto death. You're not learning lessons of character and self-control and loyalty. 
And that attitude spreads. And now we have, as you know, they're having great trouble with it. Literally millions of young people are growing up without a father and mother and often just a family headed by a woman who has to try to take care of the children and make the living and everything else is horrible. It ruins the whole society. It spreads and spreads and spreads. The result is not good. So if you learn to really love God with all your heart, you will fear God. God says this also back in Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of God, the awe of God. And that's what it's talking about, not fear of a monster. The tremendous fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's also the beginning of wisdom. As he said later, I think that's Proverbs 9, verse 10. It's also stated to be the beginning of understanding. The tremendous understanding that there is a great spirit being that made us in his image. He really does know what is best. And the word of that awe of him. And that awe should be an awe of love, though, not just an awe of terror of a monster to realize here is a being that's made us in his image. He loves us. He doesn't want us to hurt ourselves. He's trying to keep us from burning our fingers. He's trying to keep us out of the lake of fire. And he's doing everything he can to take care of us. And yet there is an element of fear, as I had as a boy, for my father. And I'm certain my children had for me because I spanked them all. If we get way out of line, daddy's going to get his belt. Or my dad used to get the ironing cord. <laughs> Boy, that really hurt. And you learn a lesson. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's verse 4, if you want to write it down. God rebukes and chastens who? Everyone he hates? No, God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. It's outflowing concern because he doesn't have any temper to lose in that sense. He does not lose his temper. He has perfect love. So we've got to understand that and then love him with that understanding and in that relationship. God wants to be totally at one with him. That's why he wants this attitude from us. He wants us to obey him. And he wants us to be totally at one with him in the way we think and act and do. It's kind of like a husband and wife. God wants a husband and wife to be one. He wants the wife to submit to her husband. And in the human family, that's similar to what God wants us to be throughout all eternity. Because I and all of you men, we also are part of what? We're part of the bride of Christ. He's going to marry the church. And all of us have that, want to have that complete oneness with Christ as a wife and husband become fully one in the human flesh. And so we understand God's purpose in all of that. Jesus Christ personified this love, this attitude. And I want to uh, read some scriptures here about that. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 5 at this point. Just the gospel of John now. John chapter 5 and verse 30. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. This is loving God with all of his being. This is loving God with all of his mind. I do not seek what my body lusts for. I do not seek what my heart in a human sense, desires. 
emotional attitudes or whatever, and I do not seek what my mind thinks about. I want my mind, my heart, my body, my entire being to be at one with God. At one with God. I want to love God with every fiber of my being and be like God. I seek not my own will in anything. As you follow the examples, and again, I could have ten sermons on that giving examples, but you most of you know the principles there. I seek not my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. So that's a very important principle to have that whole attitude in everything you think and say and do. I want God's will in my marriage. I want God's will in my job. I want God's will in my relationship with my neighbors. I want God's will in how much I tithe and give offerings. I want God's will in the way I keep His Sabbaths, the way I keep His holy days. I want God's will in every fiber of my being and every aspect of life. I want God to live His life in me through the Holy Spirit so I can be a God, in a sense. I can be part of God's family, be totally at one with God, to love God with every heart our whole heart and strength and mind. Notice back in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 now, brethren, at this point. And again, another very important aspect of Christianity is mentioned back here. Jesus said in verse 51... I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Christ gave up his life. He emptied himself, as it says back in Philippians 2 and verse 7, the correct translation there. He emptied himself. He came out of the glory and power and majesty of God, the God level of existence out of heaven, surrounded by a hundred million angels the cherubim, the seraphim, the sea of glass, everything, he came down to this earth knowing that his own people, the Jews, would not accept him and they would eventually torture him and join the Roman soldiers in torturing him. And God put both elements of humanity, made both of them share in the guilt by causing him to be accused by the Jews but killed by the Romans. He kind of guided that so that we're all guilty. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we all help kill Christ in that sense by our sins. But at any rate, he wants us to realize that and to have the attitude that God wants us to have to really feed on Christ and have him living his life within us. And then he said in verse 53, then uh, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you totally drink in of Christ and have God living in you, and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. See, I will raise him up. You do die first, but He raises you up. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Did Christ want us to be cannibals and eat on his flesh literally? Of course not. He was a 31 or 2-year-old Jew. When he said that, they all saw him here. They knew he must have been using, in a sense, a metaphor to illustrate the point here in that sense. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood uh, abides in me, and I in him. If Christ abides in you and lives in you through the Holy Spirit, then you are eating and drinking of Christ. 
as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And later down here he said in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words, get this, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So these words are Christ coming into you. If you feed on the words of this book, if you not just read it, but read it again and again, thoughtfully, slowly, meditating about it, read it sometimes on your knees, as Mr. Armstrong did, say, Father, teach me, guide me, guide my mind, help me to bring every thought into captivity to Christ and learn to do it that way and feed on Christ, then Christ begins to live his life in you through the Holy Spirit if you've been baptized and surrendered to him, of course. So this is the whole thing. You've got to have that attitude and then you will become at one with God because you will be showing God that you love him with all your heart, all your strength, and all your mind, every fiber of your being. Turn now to chapter 8 here of the book of John, John chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 28. Jesus said here, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of Myself. Again, He said, I can do nothing. He had this total understanding that God is everything and that I am nothing. He worshiped God. I am nothing. I can do nothing. But as the Father taught me, I speak these things. I am totally surrendered to tell you what He said. I'm just a tool. He knows what is best. And we've all got to come to have that attitude that God is real, that God is here in us through His Spirit, and that He really does know what is best. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. So Christ always tried to do whatever would please the Father. As He spoke these words, many believed in Him. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So there it is again. Luke 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. To feed on this book. If you abide in my word. And the word is the mind of God in print. Then you're feeding on Christ. And he lives in you. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Then another aspect of this is back in uh, John chapter 15 and verse 4. John 15 and verse 4 here, if you would turn there. And, of course, there are so many things in this wonderful book of John that exemplify these uh, principles here. But John 15 and verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. So Christ has got to live his life in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So you've got to abide in Christ and have him live his life in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. Christ lives in us through his spirit. Bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And Christ said that about himself. Apart from the Father, I can do nothing. 
You know, and how much less can we do? Without me, you can do nothing. So we've got to recognize that tremendous humility and the total submission to God and reliance upon God. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch is withered. They throw them away. They're burned up with fire. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you study this book and feed on Christ and you really understand it's the bread of life, you can't love God with all your heart and mind and strength and soul unless you do that. You've got to understand his will to love him. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If that happens, would you be asking for a gold Cadillac tomorrow? I could ask God, well, Father, I've served you now for 61 years. I want a gold Cadillac. Well, I would never ask that unless there's some big reason to have it. I don't need a gold Cadillac or any other kind of Cadillac. It's not wrong to drive a Cadillac. Some of you probably do. Many of our members around the world do. They may not drive a brand new one. Some do that too, but most of them drive a used Cadillac. It sometimes is a good car and lasts a long time. But I don't need a gold Cadillac. If there's something I genuinely need, I need a, a better car to do God's work. If I were doing a lot of driving or entertaining or whatever, or I need a bigger house to do more. I don't need a bigger house or a bigger car, by the way. <laughs> so I'm not getting ready to want anything like that. But if I did do that, I could ask in faith. But I don't need that. I'm happy where I am with my own house, my own car, my own clothes, my own wife, and I don't need anything else. All I need is to serve God more, and then God will bless me in every other way. If there's some specific thing I need, then I can ask God for that. I can ask God to heal my stroke, which I do regularly. But God has brought me closer to Him through the stroke because, as the Apostle Paul said, God revealed to him, My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so sometimes if God lets us have a sickness or a trial, we're brought down, we cry out to God all that harder, and therefore we actually do more in the end, even though we might not have the same physical strength or wealth or a nice house. I want to give you a, a principle here now to put down in your notes about this whole thing. And you, I think you may want to write this down if you're taking notes. I've thought and prayed Talk to Mr. Armstrong about this, if it makes any difference. <laughs> Not that he knew everything or everything had to be personally approved by him, but he certainly believed this. There, there are three aspects to God's love. True love involves faith and obedience. Love and faith and obedience all go hand in hand. And I want to bring that out because some people doubt. And we do not have this sense of absolute faith and knowing that we used to even when the church was smaller. We had a big church split when Mr. Armstrong died and all kinds of little groups started here and there and everybody has his own opinion. A lot of the brethren do not believe these other people and church government so they just do their own thing. And now some of those churches are splitting and resplitting and having problems because they do not follow the government of God as it is clearly revealed I was telling the leader of one of those groups, I said, I will give you $1,000 of my own money, George. His name is not George. <laughs> I said, I will give you, th I'm not rich, but I'll give you $1,000 of my own money. It would be worth it. Worth it. I'm not betting. I'll just say, I'll give you this. If you will show me one single scripture, instruction, command, example, one in the whole Bible where God used any other kind of government 
accept hierarchical government. And, of course, he couldn't do that. He just looked kind of funny and changed the subject because it can't be done. God always had appointed Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, Abraham's sons and grandsons on down through Jacob's sons. And then he had Moses and Aaron, the brothers, and brought them in and used them together as a family to guide his people during that period of time. And on down through time, he would have them appoint others. As you read in Exodus 19, you choose men who fear God and men of wisdom and so on, he told Moses, and they'll select or appoint, as some translations have it. And that's the way it is all through the Bible from one end to the other. And at the very end of the Bible, back in Titus, read Titus chapter 1, Paul was telling Titus to go all over Crete and appoint. He didn't say elect or get a board to vote in politic and have them give speeches as to why they're qualified and make it political. You appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. He didn't say as I suggested. He, He said as I commanded you, Titus, you do this. It was government of God all the way through the Bible with no exception. Why? That's not to exalt me or exalt Mr. Armstrong or the human leader. It's because it works better. It's God's way. God has always done that, always will do that. We'll do that on into eternity. And we've got to learn that. That's part of loving God is to believe in that, follow it in the right way, and see that God's blessings will come if we do that, if we're willing to live by every word of God. But if you have faith that God is there in spite of the problems in the church and realize God allowed those problems, I think I told some of you, and I'll tell all of your brethren around the world who may hear this, it may be good to hear it again. Not that he knew everything either. I kind of felt the same way, but I just asked our, our, uh, what do we call him, the one who was the first evangelist ordained, the dean of the ministry, he was sometimes called, Herman Hay. Uh, He was my dear friend. After the big split came and Mr. Armstrong died and then Tkachas began to take the church away from the Bible, why I asked him, I said, Herman, why do you think a God allowed this? I knew God allowed it. He's not dead. Why do you think God allowed this? And Herman Hay said, it was time for the Laodicean church to begin. And Christ can't come until the Laodicean church is here and it's not here now. But now the groundwork is laid. If you get all this confusion that they were beginning to bring in, it would bring about the Laodicean church, which it certainly did. Because the worldwide is not Laodicean. They've gone clear back into mainstream Protestantism, which they themselves admit that's what they want. They're not any branch of the church. They don't even use the name Church of God anymore. But it laid the groundwork for this thing to happen that happened, and it was God's will. Why? Well, as I've told you, brethren, way back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s when I was in the ministry and dealing with people literally all over the United States and Great Britain, too, I helped build the church in Britain on several occasions. And my son, Jim, who spoke here, was born right there at Brickett Wood. I was over there helping start Ambassador College. I'd been there twice before on a three-and-a-half-month visit with Dick Armstrong and a seven-month stay with my wife back in 56 and 7 when Elizabeth was born and other times since. So I helped build those churches from the ground up, the London church, the Bristol church, the Birmingham church, the Manchester church, all in Great Britain. And the same old thing over there. Many of the brethren were there. They were warming a seat. Many of our college kids in Brickett Wood and Big Sandy And in Pasadena and other brethren, too, they would join the club. 
And as they got older and realized it, I would warn them when they came to baptismal counseling. They knew how to answer. Yes, I repent. Yes, they knew the right answers. But my question was, do they really mean it? Do they really understand that they are making a covenant with their Creator to literally give their lives to God? No holes barred. And I would say, we don't have a club. You can't join the club. There is no club. I can't give you the Holy Spirit, Joanne. Mr. Armstrong can't give you the Holy Spirit. Nobody could give you the Holy Spirit except God. And you can't fool God. Do you really fear God? Do you want to bury yourself? And know that it's not your life anymore. It is God's life. It belongs to Him. Well, Joanne or George or whoever the student was would maybe say, Well, I'll wait a while or something. Or I'll, I decided to counsel them later or whatever. Some of them would go ahead and fool me on occasion and still turn away very quickly. Others met it, of course, and were really converted. But the church grew and grew in numbers, but many of them had never been converted any more than Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny. That's the reason they just went every which way. After the Brickettwood College closed, well, I could name a whole series of department heads that just left. No job, no paycheck, no church. Suddenly the Sabbath wasn't the Sabbath anymore. When the sun set Friday night, that had no meaning. Do you see what I mean? That happened, brethren. Mr. Armstrong used to say, I don't think half of you people out there are converted. And toward the end, two or three times, he said, and Mr. Partian has affirmed that in front of the whole council of elders. I, I'm glad I could have his, his uh, second on, on the thing several times when the council was there to hear it. And some of you, a few of you older brethren even here might remember that. I think Mr. and Mrs. Davis may have heard that and others. He'd say, I'm not sure that more than a tithe of you, a tenth of you are converted. And he was more correct on that last statement than the first. Maybe only one-tenth of those 150,000 people then were really converted because some were just going their own way. They weren't necessarily doing terrible things, but you could just tell they were self-willed. The self was dominant, not God. There was not the profound fear of God, the awe of God, and the total love, the worship, the adoration that I know that God is there, that God is good, that God is right, that God will take care of me no matter what, that attitude was not there. And that is the love of God, the fear of God, and the faith of God. All those things go together. They're all part of that total attitude of knowing and believing in the God of the Bible, the real God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is the thing we've got to understand about what is the love of God and how, of course, in the right way to love God with all our heart and strength and mind. Remember First John 5, while we're talking about uh, the first and great commandment is to love God with all of your being. And the Protestants say, well, just, you know, try to be good and love your neighbors yourself. And then leave out that first and great commandment. Remember back here in First John, just before the book of Jude, in Revelation, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2, John writes, the beloved apostle, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. What does that have to do with loving your neighbor? I just explained, if you don't really know God and fear God... You don't know how to love the children of God. 
If another civil war comes along or a class war, then maybe the blacks will hate the whites and the whites will hate the blacks even in God's church. Some other kind of war. There's always these things coming along. You've got to know God, fear God, and know that He's right no matter what man is saying. And we've got to do that. We're going to have all kinds of trials and tests like that before it's over. Verse 3. For this is, this is the Bible definition of love. This is the love of God. Be sure that's a a memory scripture for all of you. One of the most important scriptures in the entire Bible anywhere. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. It doesn't say some brand new commandment Jesus brought. God's commandments and his commandment commandments are not burdensome. They're not terrible hard to keep. The world has made the Sabbath a little more difficult than it should be. But as I've explained to you older brethren and many of you here in past sermons at Ambassador College, what was the easiest commandment to keep? The Sabbath. Because only one day a week you had to rest and everyone else was resting, so why not? You know what I mean? In tomorrow's world, that'll be the easiest commandment to keep. That's not burdensome to rest, you know. Ask the young boys when they're resurrected who used to work in the Welch coal mines. And they had to work 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. And their average mortality rate was, I think, lived up to only 32 or 35 years old, some of them. Terrible, long, hard hours. And the mine owners just ground them down physically, mentally, emotionally until they died. Big factory owners would overwork people and make them work seven days a week with no rest. The Sabbath is an awesome blessing wherever it's kept. God's commandments are a way of life that's a wonderful way of life. So that is how you love God. How do you love God? By keeping the force four commandments, telling you to put him ahead of everything else, by not having any other idol or crazy object that you look to instead of God and get sidetracked from worshiping the invisible creator of the heavens and the earth, by not misusing his name and cheapening it when you talk about God, and by worshiping and resting on God's Sabbath day. And why that that day today we're here points to the Creator who rested on the seventh day. It's a sign of creation. It's a sign between God, the Creator, and His true people. So that is how you love God, by keeping all of those. And then, as you know, keep the last five. You honor your father and mother. That's how you love God. You honor those who brought you into being and who created you in a human sense under the direction of God, in a sense. You honor them. And you do not kill taking the life of another human being in any way, in war and in abortion, because human life is sacred. All of us are made in the image of God, potential members of the God family. You dare not think about killing another human being. You're killing a potential God. You do not commit adultery because you know that's violating a man's mate or his future mate, a father's daughter. And you're taking the life and the joy another man might have in a marriage with his wife and cheapening that and taking it down through the sewer pipe and making it nasty and dirty and hurting that future relationship or present relationship. As it says back in the Proverbs, a man who commits adultery with another man's wife lacks understanding, but the Hebrew there is lacks heart, if you look it up. He lacks heart. He can't realize that if he takes this woman who's the mate and the, the, the com- complete companion, the other half of another man, 
somehow and even gets, you know, seduces her even, not forces her. That man's going to be hurt deeply the rest of his life. The deep love and trust and warmth and love and total sense of sharing and security that they have. It'll never be the same again. He's taking something precious to that other human being and dragging it right through a sewer pipe. No wonder God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You love God by not even thinking about doing that. And by having your mind cleaned up and asking God on your knees, clean me up, scrub me out. Give me your thoughts, O God. And trying, as I've said, through God's spirit within you to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. That's how you love God with all your heart and to keep all of his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep all of his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So we have to understand that principle very, very profoundly. Now, let's turn to Hebrews here and get this aspect of faith where living faith, living faith equals true love equals obedience. They all go together. And we need to understand that principle. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3, if you would, brethren, at this time. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 17, now with whom was God angry 40 years, you know, back in ancient Israel? Was it not with those who sinned, who, uh, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? They did not obey, and we know that. So we see that they could not enter in because of what? Disobedience? No. He repeats in the next verse, not obey, but because of unbelief. Why did not they not obey? Because they didn't believe. You've got to believe that God is there, that God's in charge, that God is right before you obey. And true obedience is love. So true faith helps you begin to obey God. And that then is the love of God. They all go together. Therefore, chapter 4, a sense of promise remains of entering his rest. Let, that's the coming kingdom rest. It's talking about ultimately. And back there it was going into the land of Israel. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the words which they heard did not profit them, not being what? Mixed with faith. You have to have faith to fully get the impact of the Bible and do what God says. You've got to know there's a big God behind these words, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So this is the attitude. You've got to have genuine faith in God, and then you will do what God says in every way. Notice back in Hebrews 11, a classic scripture, but while we're on that, let's read it at least. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must, not just might, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who, what? Sort of just, well, I, I serve God once in a while and I have a little bit of religion over here in the corner of my life, but I don't want to get too serious about it. That might be, you know, unbalanced. No, he help, hears those and blesses those who diligently seek Him. There is an attitude of seeking God. I want you, Father. I want you, O God. Teach me your way. Lead me in your paths. And you go consciously to seek God with all your heart. Diligently. 
Whatever we do, God tells us to do with our might. And we ought to love God with all our heart and all our strength and all our might. That's part of love, going all out. And going on now, let's go to Romans chapter 4, if you would, for a moment, back here in the book of Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse uh, 1 to 3. So what shall we say? that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. Remember, brethren, Abraham was the father of the faithful. For Abraham was justified by works, not just by empty faith, but by doing. He, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to be boasted of, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But other scriptures show it was not an empty belief. But that absolute faith in God that he is there, that he is right, was counted as righteousness. So you've got to have that attitude of real faith in God in order to have God's blessing and to show God you love him in that way, that attitude of faith. Back in the book of James, brethren, turn to James chapter 2, and here you'll see where the Bible itself explains this. Abraham, I mean, James 2.21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. He did something. It was not empty faith. Do you see then that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God. He really believed God. He knew God was there, that God was right even though it looked awful at the time to kill his own son, that God was all-powerful. And as this book, uh, Hebrews, tells us, he knew that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, even if he did kill him. He put faith in God. So he knew that he was there, and faith was made perfect. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Do you want to be a friend of God? If you love God and prove to yourself that he is there, that he's all-powerful, that this is his inspired word, then you become a friend of God if you act on that knowledge and do what God says and walk and live by faith. Real faith leads to action. It leads to the keeping God's commandments and of God's special instruction to you, of course. So that's all part of really loving God with all of your heart. Uh Abraham trusted in God. He obeyed God. He then loved God, and God honored that. Uh, Abraham then became the father of the faithful. Back in Genesis 22 is this example to which I referred. If you want to turn back there to the book of Genesis, and I'm going back to chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 It shows the story about how, in verse 1, after these things, God tested. God was testing. Are you really going to serve me? He left everything he'd ever known and gone into strange land and dwelt in tents. Abraham did that. God knew that, but he gave him now a supreme test. He tested him and said, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He says, now take your son, your only son, the only legitimate son he had. 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him for a burnt offering. Wow! Did Abraham argue? No. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took off and went there. And as they got there, Isaac asked him about the sacrifice. He said, well, Father, you have the knife and the flame, but where is the lamb? God said, Abraham said, son, God will take care of that. And so finally he was ready to kill Isaac and bound him. And he said in verse 20, uh, verse 12, a voice came, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here am I. And in verse 12, God said through this angel, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. And later then a lamb appeared or a ram was caught and Abraham did that. And in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, says the ever-living one, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. They'll live in the United States of America from sea to shining sea. The British Empire will spread all over the earth and be the greatest empire in human history. They will become the great company of nations. And the Manassites will become the greatest single nation ever to exist on the face of the earth. A tremendous blessing came because of Abraham and his obedience and this attitude and how to trust God and love God, to know that God was there, that God was right, to have this total union with God, to be at one with God in every facet of his being. And so he said, I will bless you and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and so on. An awesome blessing because of Abraham's faith and because of Abraham's obedience, which certainly was love. He loved God profoundly or would not have done that. Then we have the wonderful example of David. And most of you, of course, realize the Scripture back in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22 where uh, David is called, Acts 13, if you want to write it down, verse 22, he says, David was called a man after God's own heart. Why was David a man after God's own heart? A lot of people don't fully realize that. There are many reasons. One reason was because if you read Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is an example of the whole thing, says he meditated on God's law on his statutes, on his judgments. He meditated on God's law day and night. God appreciated that. He went all out to serve God. He trusted in God. But I want to give you some other examples beside that too because David went all out uh, to love God and we need to understand that because one part of it is the passion, the passion that David had for God. Turn back to 1 Samuel 17, if you would. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And since I've had so many scriptures today, and this is a huge subject, I didn't even get markers for all of this, so I'm taking more time to find the scriptures than usual. But anyway, 1 Samuel 17, brethren, and it tells the story about his, and when Israel was fighting the Philistines, and the Philistines were their rulers and they were trying to get free. The Philistines came to put them down and they were fighting. And this giant came out called Goliath, challenging the armies of Israel and cursing them and making fun of them. 
And everyone was afraid, including David's own brother, who made fun of him and said, you little young guy, what makes you think you can do anything? And his older brothers put him down, but so on. Anyway, as you see the story, it moves on to where finally the confrontation took place. David told Saul, I can face this man. I have killed a bear. I have killed a lion with my bare hands and a spear. And I can deal with this big man here. He's no more dangerous than they are. And so he went out to face him. And this giant came out. Verse 43, the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? David had his stave, I guess, is all he had. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. It became a kind of a religious confrontation. Is the God of the Philistines the biggest or the God of David the greatest? Come to me and I'll feed your flesh to the birds of the heaven and the beasts. And then David said, You come to me with a sword and spear and a javelin, you great big giant there with all your armor and all your spears. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of the host, the God of the armies of Israel. I come to you in the name of the God of the armies of Israel. And he is God, and I will show you that. David loved God. Out of the stars at night, he meditated upon God. He thought about God. He saw the beauty and the magnificence up there. And he talks about it all through the Psalms, brethren. Go back and read the Psalms. He thought about the, 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 the power of God and the thunder, the rolling thunder of God. He thought about the gentle breezes coming through, the beautiful evanescence of a, of a setting sun and, and the, the beauty of the whole creation at that time with the birds suddenly singing and, and the sun going down and the beauty around him. He thought of all those things. He thought in the right way many times of the love of a man and a woman which is good in God's sight if it's used the right way, and all the beautiful things that we know. We've all got to learn to think that way, which David did as you read the story of David, because every good and every beautiful thing comes from God. When you see the beautiful face of a little child who's happy, that's from God. I have a little granddaughter who may be here today, Brenna, and she's such a happy little girl. She was at our house last night. I'll always remember... When I was about her age, about four or five or whatever, some of the happiest times I ever had in my life were down with my father and mother at his cabin. And it wasn't a great big lodge. It was a little tiny, he called it a fish cabin, just about three rooms and a little fireplace and by a little river, not a big fancy river, but a little kind of a resort. Had no electric lights. Think that's awful? I enjoyed it. It was exciting. It's like camping out, but in a small cabin, not a tent. And no water. He and I, when we'd get down there, my mother and the girls would, would go and start cleaning and washing off the tables and getting the food ready. And Daddy and I would pick up these big buckets and go up to the spring. We might have to chase away the water moccasins, but they had good water coming out of the spring. And we'd come back carrying the water several times a day. So we had water and could drink and wash ourselves and so on and so forth. And we heard the crickets at night and the big frogs down down there and the lightning bugs, the fireflies out there over the field. Beautiful things. God's creation. I'll never forget that and how wonderful that was. And one day when I was just four or five, I was out on the edge of the hill 
And I was just looking around at the beauty and the trees and some birds were up there and it was just a beautiful sunlit day. It wasn't too hot or too cold. And I think I was digging worms out there. I'd been out there a long time by myself on the side of the, of the hill, just four years old about. And my mother came out and she was not, my mother and father were not emotional people at all. Uh, some are more that way, but they were more a little bit cool and calm and collected in their personality. But she came out and looked down at me. She said, Roderick, are you all right? And I said, yes, the mother is so beautiful. And I, 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 excuse, excuse me. I remember looking up and saying, it's so beautiful out here. The beautiful trees, the sunshine. And she looked down and tears came to her eyes. She thought her little boy was so happy to be alive, <laughs> and that made her happy. I'm sorry as I get emotional in my old age sometimes. That's terrible. <laughs> anyway, God loves us. He loves us more than our father. He loves us more than our mother. He wants us to be happy. He's just told us to learn to love him, to really do what he says. If we don't do what he says, we just hurt ourselves. And we've got to recognize he is a father. If you read this first chapter of Second Corinthians, he's called the father of mercies. And read the book of James. And it says, I want to turn there at this point, I guess, and I better get away from here. Well, I'll go on here. Uh, I think I've already thinked this that uh, about David. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord God of the armies of Israel. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He had faith in God. And I will strike you and take your head from you. Well, now, that's not very Christian. I know you might think that, and that's true. David was not a Christian. Uh, the New Testament had not yet been written. David was serving God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, though he did serve him, except in one instance. And we always flash mock on that, many do, about the example of Uriah and Bathsheba. But David was, God said later, as I've told you, go back and read it. He said only in his inspired word, only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David ever turn aside. Only. That's the one time I've turned aside probably hundreds of times and having wrong thoughts and, and doing bad things. And probably most of you have. Maybe David had wrong thoughts because they, they were not guided in the same way then, but he sure didn't do bad things except that one time when he really did turn away from God. He loved God. He worshiped God. He adored God. He knew, he described the glory of God and the beauty of God and the power of God again and again all through the Psalms. And so he said, I will be given the power of God to deal with you that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And brethren, if we love God as a church, if you love God as an individual and give your life to God, your time, your talents, your treasure, every five of your being to serve God, to worship God, God can use us and empower us in doing this work so that all the world will come to know there is a real God and that he has a true church and has true servants on this earth. And we're to learn that lesson from these examples to love God with all our heart and all our being. And certainly God wants us to do that. So this is part of the lessons we can learn from David and what we ought to learn to do as well. Uh, then as you turn back to Psalms, 
Let's see how our time is doing. Not too good here. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's turn to Psalm 33, if you would. Psalm 33, and notice in verse 10, David's psalm. The eternal brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the eternal stands forever. Men have all these important sounding meetings. What are they going to produce? Confusion. He brings their counsels to nothing. Blessed is the nation whose God is the eternal, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. Notice, he fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Brethren, we need to realize there is a great spirit being out there who is God. He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. As he tells us back in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, all things, not some things, all things work for good for those who love God. Do you love God in the way I've described? To love God and are called according to his purpose. So he... That great being has made you and me in his image. He's working with us. He's knocking the rough edges off of our minds, off of our thoughts, off of our character. He's fashioning and molding us to make us like he is. He wants us to think like he thinks. He wants us eventually to be like he is. He is a loving father, and he wants us to be his full sons in his kingdom and his family forever. So we've got to catch that vision and understand that, that every beautiful piece of music we've ever heard, every beautiful mountain we've ever seen, every beautiful young child we've ever loved or seen, every good and every beautiful thing comes from God. He's the author of it. The soft breezes through the trees, the power and majesty of rolling thunder, the gorgeous mountains living up snow-capped mountains, all of it comes from God. Every good thing comes from God because he is love. And we see that. We try to relate to that in nature and look up into the heavens, as David said, the sun, the moon, and stars. And what do we see? We see the power of God, the intricate creation of God, the glory of God, and know that that great being is our Father who art in heaven. And realize that, feel that, powerfully relate to that. That great God has made us in his image to be his full sons. Let's turn back in closing, if you would, to John chapter 17 in your New Testament. John chapter 17. And here is a scripture that is one of my favorites, as you know. The last prayer of Jesus, the only complete prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And it's a more of a complete prayer, of course, than just the outline prayer of the, of the so-called Lord's Prayer. Just before he's died, verse 1, John 17, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, he didn't bow down, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. The great God is sitting at the controls of the universe. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you've given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this is eternal life. Get this, brethren. This is the definition, that they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you can come to know God by having this concept of God as a perfect father, your creator, who's fashioning you, molding you, working with you, making you his full sons. And when things go bad, you can recognize that God is there. He's not forsaken you. He is testing you. He's helping you. He's strengthening you in every way if you let him do it and try to learn every lesson that God wants you to learn. So this is to know God. I have glorified you, Jesus said, on the earth. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with your own self. Glorify? He'd ask God to give him back the glory that he had before the creation. He wanted that total glory back, his face shining like the sun, his voice booming across the earth like rolling thunder. He wanted that glory. And God would give it, of course. I glorified you. I have finished the work, and now give me back the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then down in chapter 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, that is, his apostles and disciples right then, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We believe in God through these words. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me. God lived in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory, what glory? The glory which you gave me. And when we read about Christ in Revelation chapter 1, and his face shining like the sun in full strength, and the power of his voice and the glory of his being, you see what kind of glory that is. The glory which you've given me, I have given them. In Christ's will and his purpose, which cannot be changed, those of us who qualify, that's our only problem, will we do our part, I have given them. He has designated it, that they may be one, what, some lower extent? No, that they may be one just as we are one. Totally one with God, born of God, full sons of God, glorified members of the family of God to roar here and there throughout the whole universe, to literally enjoy Pluto, Pluto, Saturn, or Venus, all the, all the planets out there and enjoy those things, exult in them, shout for joy, and yet teach billions of human beings during the millennium the right way of life to bring tears of joy to people, to deliver these people out of the slavery, out of the poverty, out of the war, out of the, the famine and disease and suffering they're beginning to experience and will experience ten times more in the next several years all over this world. We have that opportunity because God loved us and because God has called us and God wants us to love Him. So let's learn that lesson. This is what God has in mind for us, that we may become one just as Christ and the Father as one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made one and that the world may know that you have loved, uh, that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That is the message Jesus Christ had and shows us in this final prayer for his own people because God is love and he wants us to love him back. He wants that kind of fellowship with us. And if we show that love to him, we will live forever 
and a kingdom based on love, on service, on wisdom, on integrity, and safety, and joy, and blessings forever.